Mark chapter 15, verse uh, 33. Just as you turn that up, let me, uh, just by way of introduction, explain uh, what we're going to do tonight. Tonight I'd like us to consider uh, the very heart of our faith, um, the cross. There are many places we could do that in Scripture, obviously. We tend to turn to the epistles, the letters in the Bible, maybe Romans 3 or Colossians 1 or 1 Peter 1, these great explanations of the atonement, the explanations of the significance of the cross. But rather than turn there tonight, we turn to the narrative of the cross, the actual physical events described. And we turn to the very first description of what happened at Calvary, the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel, the first book of its kind ever to be written down. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joses and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Amen. This is God's living word. It is good for us from time to time to focus on the cross that we might be reminded of its significance, its centrality to our faith. It has been said rightly, I think, that you cannot become a Christian until you understand the cross. Or becoming a Christian, that point of faith, is that point of understanding of the cross. You cannot repent and believe unless you understand what happened as Jesus hung on the cross. It might also be said rightly that you cannot live an effective Christian life unless you keep coming back to the centre of our faith and that is the cross. Some of our favourite hymns and songs capture this sense of centrality and the motivating power of the cross so powerfully. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time standing 
as a sinner lost undone by mercy, left speechless, wide-eyed, may I never lose the wonder of the cross. Or were the whole realm of nature mine, that where an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Why does the cross demand my soul, my life, and my all? Why does the cross render us speechless and undone by mercy, wide-eyed at the cross? Now tonight, as I said, we turn to one of the narrative passages that describe the cross. And the writer of uh, this Gospel, Mark, uh, records the factual historical events. But he does so. And this is the brilliance of how these evangelists, these Gospel writers write. Mark records the facts, but he does so in a way that explains the Gospel at the same time. Let me come at it another way. In the way he structures his text, in the way he tells what happened, he proclaims the gospel. Mark, of course, is a brilliant writer, but he works under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. Let me show you how Mark structures his narrative. Just look with me in your Bibles. You'll see it for yourselves. Two parts. Part one, verses 33 through 36. See it there in your text. Part 2, verses 37 to 41. Two parts. In each part, in each of these two parts, a threefold structure. In each part, there's a sign, there's a cry from Jesus, and there's a response from those watching. A sign, a cry, a response. Let me show you that first in part 1, verses 33 to 36. The sign there, it is, verse 33, darkness. Second verse 33, the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sign, the cry. Third verses 35 and 36, the reaction, the response of those standing around the foot of the cross. Part one, a sign, a cry. A response, and then that pattern is repeated in part 2, verses 37 to 41. The order is a little different, but it's the same threefold pattern. Look with me. First, there's the cry from Jesus, verse 37. Second, the sign, verse 38, the curtain of the temple ripped in two. And third, verse 39 to 41, the response of those standing near. It's a very striking pattern, and it's exactly what Mark is up to. When you see it, it's obvious. Uh, I don't claim to have seen this. Uh, Dick Lucas, uh, my friend and mentor, every time he preaches, he just kind of cracks the text open like that. And it's obvious. It's two halves. In each half, a sign, a cry, a reaction. Part two, a cry, a sign, a reaction. That's Mark's purpose. We need that in our minds if we want to understand what he says. Now let's take each part in turn. You'll see on the service sheet, I've got two simple headings. Part one, forsaken. Part two, forgiven. You understand these two simple headings, forsakenness and forgiveness. You understand the cross. That's the heart of it. Wrath and mercy together. First then, verses 33 to 36. The sign and the cry of forsakenness 
and then the reaction. Let's read verses 33 and 34. The sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, verse 33 is the sign. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That is, from midday till three in the afternoon, darkness. Think of today, a bright, sunny winter's day. At twelve o'clock, midday, at the height of the sun, darkness comes over the whole land. At the very moment when the sun in the sky should have been at its brightest, darkness falls over the whole land. It's not dull, it's not cloudy, it's dark. It's darkness. And we are left in no doubt that this is a supernatural event. We tend to think of the supernatural at the cross in terms of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But the supernatural was with him on the cross. Darkness is supernatural. Uh, It's not a solar eclipse, as some have claimed, for such a phenomenon cannot in any explanation of natural laws last for more than a few minutes. It is a supernatural event, a sign from God. Now, what does the sign mean? What is the significance of the darkness? Right through the Bible, light symbolizes God's favor, while darkness represents God's anger and judgment. That is why at Christmas we celebrate the light of God coming into the world to illuminate the darkness. And so as the sky darkens across the whole land from noon till three in the afternoon, that is a clear sign of God's anger and judgment. And what is the nature of God's anger? Not ever unpredictable, irrational, wild, tempestuous, the product of his temper. Rather, God's anger is settled and controlled, his personal divine hostility to sin, righteous anger, the anger of a God that is infinitely holy, directed against all that is sinful, the judgment of God against sin. Now against whom at the cross is God's anger directed? The astonishing truth is that his anger is directed against his Son. God's judgment directed against Jesus. And so at one level, while everyone in the land was aware of the darkness, one man, the Lord Jesus, experienced the darkness in a way that no one else did. The anger of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, in all of its intensity, was focused on Jesus. If you hold a magnifying glass up to the sun, the rays of the sun focused through the lens in the magnifying glass, yields an intensity of light that is strong enough to set fire to the ground. Use that analogy to understand what is happening here. The wrath of God, the judgment of God, displayed to all in the land in the darkness, focused like a prism in all of its intensity on the Son of God as he hung on 
the cross. Now, in a sense, when you see that, your heart says, is that really what is happening? How do we know? Well, listen to the Lord Jesus as he tells us what is happening. From the sign to the cry, verse 34. The cry of anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, forsaken and abandoned by God. Why? That we might be forgiven. Why? For the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is paying the price, the ransom price, bearing the punishment that our sin deserves. He is substituting for us. He is atoning for sin. Yesterday at uh, Maisie's funeral that I was speaking at, I said to the people in the crematorium that faith is personal. Faith is not some kind of thing that comes to us by default. Faith is personal. So let me personalize for you what happened at the cross. What did Jesus do for you personally? I wonder if there's somebody here who's never quite got it. What did he do for you personally? He bore your sin. As he hung upon the cross, he took upon himself your sin. Everything you have ever done or said that is offensive or wrong in God's eyes. All the actions, all the words, all the unspoken thoughts of your hearts, all the yearnings and the temptations and the longings over all of your life, however long, past and future, all of that, all of that, not anything missing, your sin and my sin and the sin of all people who will believe in him, born by him as his hands and feet were nailed to the cross. Not in some vague way, in the sense that we get caught up in this, but not personally involved. When he died on the cross, all of your sins were nailed into him. That is what he did on the cross. He bore our sin, but also the punishment for our sin, the punishment that we deserve. He bore the wrath of God, the just punishment from a holy God against sin and sinners. He died as your substitute in your place, taking the punishment you deserve. And that is the achievement of the cross. And it had to be so. It was the only way that atonement for sin could be made. It had to be that the Son of God became the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, that we might be forgiven. It had to be that the Son of God laid down his life, that sons of men, men and women, born in Adam, born in sin, might become sons of God, fully forgiven. It had to be that way. No other way would achieve forgiveness. And that is why we sing, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. This, the power of the cross, he became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. What's the last line of the song? Therefore, we stand forgiven at the cross. Sign the cry, the response. Verses 35 and 36. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. There are various people around the cross. 
soldiers doing their job, religious leaders taunting Jesus and insulting him. Then there are others who just seem to be there to see what happens. And that's really the voice that speaks here. There is no understanding of what is happening. There is no fear or respect as Jesus is punished by God in our place. Instead, there is detachment and cynicism. Every time a funeral goes by, I preach the gospel in front of a coffin. It's kind of stark, isn't it? And you preach the gospel, and people look up, and they listen, and they take it in. And, and they, what do they make of Jesus? And the moment's passed. Now, part two, 37 to 41. Forgiven. Now, first the cry. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. John's Gospel records the actual words of Jesus, three words with enormous significance. It is finished, or it is done, or it is accomplished, or all that I came to do has been done to the full satisfaction of my Father. What was finished? His work of bearing sin and his work of bearing penalty for sin. What was accomplished? The perfect sacrifice for all who will believe. At that moment, Jesus cried, it is finished. The wrath, listen to this, at that moment when Jesus cried, it is finished. The wrath of God for all those who would believe in him was satisfied, was extinguished, was removed from the horizon of God for eternity because of the death of his son. And so as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Why will this hymn stand the test of time? The power of the cross, he became sin for us, he took the blame and he bore the wrath and so we stand forgiven at the cross because that hymn gets the gospel on the head. He took the blame, he bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. The cry, the sign, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple symbolically represented the separation of God from his people. A necessary separation because of the problem of sin. The curtain was like a big no-entry sign. It said loudly and clearly that it is impossible for sinful people like you and me to walk into God's presence. Then suddenly, as Jesus died on the cross, the curtain is ripped in two by God from top to bottom. Why? Because sinful people can now come into the presence of God because in the eyes of God, they are no longer sinful. They are righteous because of Christ's death. What a powerful sign that must have been for anyone in the temple as that mighty curtain was ripped into by a supernatural act of God when Jesus said, it is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, the bridge between humanity and God was reconstructed. And when Jesus looks at you, 
when the Lord God, our Father, looks at you, if you have trusted in Jesus, he sees no sin but only the righteousness of his Son. And therefore, you have full and free access to him because the Holy Spirit lives in you. The response, verses 39 to 41, of those standing near. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Mark's Gospel has a number of significant characters in it. Model disciples, if you like. The model disciples in Mark's Gospel include a blind beggar in chapter 11 who's the only one who sees clearly who Jesus is and follows him on the road of discipleship. A blind beggar. And here, a Roman centurion is the model disciple in Mark's Gospel. He had seen hundreds of crucifixions, but never one like this. And he made that vital connection that what he saw happening before his eyes, this man bearing the wrath of God, was happening to the Son of God. And you see how that is the point of saving faith. When you see that man dying on the cross with the darkness all around, and you conclude that that is God's Son, you have understood the Gospel. You have understood what substitutionary atonement means. You have understood, in other words, what he did, he bore your sin and bore God's wrath, taking your place that you might be forgiven. And so you stand, I stand, looking at the cross, and you say, surely this man was the Son of God. That is saving faith. That is saving faith. That is what it means to understand the cross. And who is he? Who is this man? This model believer, he's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. The gospel, therefore, is for who? For all people. And what outrageous grace that God opens the eyes of the man who supervised the execution of his son to believe in him. God's grace emanates from the cross to the man who supervised the crucifixion of his son. And then the women standing nearby, verses 40 to 41, some women were watching from a distance. Among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger son of Josie, Salome, and Galilee. These women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It's very striking in all the gospel accounts that women feature prominently in the narratives describing the death and resurrection of Jesus. There are some practical reasons for this associated with their particular role in the culture attending to the dead. But the true significance is to make the point that the gospel is for all. Women in the ancient world were not treated as God had made them. They were not treated as equal. And they are the ones gathered around the foot of the cross when Jesus died. And what a wonderful moving description of loyal disciples, loyal followers they are. These women 
had followed him, Mark records, and cared for his needs. And now they can only observe as he dies to meet their greatest need. Now as we conclude, let me draw our attention again to the two responses to Jesus' death. In all of the Passion narratives in the different Gospel books, there are two responses and only two to the cross. Rejection or acceptance, unbelief or faith. And in many ways that uh, crystallises anyone's response to the Gospel. We either believe it or we don't. We either believe in Jesus as the Son of God and the Saviour of our sins or we don't. He leaves no other options availed to us. There are two ways to live, with or without him. There are two ways to die, with or without him. There are two eternities, with or without him. It is stark and it is simple. And in the narratives of his death, it is crystal clear. Think of the two criminals in John's Gospel's record who died alongside Jesus. Two criminals on one cross, on another. One chose to trust him. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. One mocked him and chose judgment, rejection or acceptance, unbelief or faith. Mark's focus is not on the two criminals, but on the bystanders, the crowd around the cross, the centurion, the bystanders, the women. But in them we see two responses, rejection or acceptance. Now look back as we conclude to the narrative. Look at the text. Let me ask you this question. Where do you stand in this narrative, in this text tonight? Where would you put yourself in this text? Are you up there in the top half? Your response like those in verses 35 and 36? who just don't accept that Jesus is the Son of God, who died that your sins might be forgiven. Well, if that is where you stand, in the top half of this text, you stand under the darkness and under the judgment of God. You stand like Jesus, forsaken. That's Mark's point. Or do you stand like the centurion at the foot of the cross, looking up to Jesus as the Son of God dying to save you? In the other half, if that is you, you find yourself under the cry of victory, it is finished. You find yourself walking through that ripped curtain into the very presence of God. So where do you stand? Where is this room divided? Where is humanity divided? Where is every funeral divided? Which side are you on? Under judgment? Under victory? Forsaken? Or forgiven? Every time you hear the gospel, there is a chance, if you stand under judgment, to come under forgiveness, to receive the forgiveness that Jesus alone offers. And if you are a Christian, then put yourself in the shoes of that centurion or these women standing nearby and look at Jesus 
and respond to what he has done with your life, with your soul, with your all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these gospel accounts and our clarity. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that tonight those of us in this room would be found under uh, forgiveness, under that cry of victory, inheritors of that glorious access that was bought for us through the blood of Jesus. And if, Lord, we are not Christians, and tonight perhaps we have grasped the true significance of the cross, we pray that by your mercy and in your grace, you would lead us to turn to the Lord Jesus like that centurion who gazed at his broken body and who understood the significance of the darkness and the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And with a repentant heart seeking forgiveness for sin, we would turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, be my Saviour, be my Lord, give me the righteousness that you alone can give me and give me a new life in you and the promises of resurrection and forgiveness. Help any of us, Lord, who have not yet believed to make that step. And for those of us who have, may we stand like that Roman centurion, undone by mercy, and watching wide-eyed at the cross. And may we never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May we grasp it like the first time, and where the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small, for this is love so amazing and so divine that it demands, like nothing else does, my life, my soul, and my all. Help us so to live. In Jesus' name. Amen.